Jim Siegler here for Brainwaves. Today on our show, syncope. To get us started, I wanted to share a story with you, a story about syncope. A few years ago, I watched my younger brother, Alex, graduate from his basic training as a U.S. Marine, and I could not have been prouder, or more terrified to pick a fight with him ever again. But one thing that really stuck with me that day at the Marine Corps graduation was something I never thought I would see out of our elite U.S. military. Something I could not have predicted would have happened to a squad of soldiers in their best physical health of their lives. Soldiers who had survived days of sleep deprivation and food restriction, the sweltering summer heat and freezing mountain conditions. Soldiers who were trained to survive. With all their vigilance and their physique as these soldiers stood at attention in the foreground at the graduation ceremony, one of the graduating cadets collapsed. It was as if a tiny tranquilizer dart had picked off the marine and all life were drained from him. Where once there was a stone-faced soldier standing at attention before the small crowd of family and friends, there was now a limp pile of flaccid muscle that had melted into the concrete quad. And this would not be unusual to see a soldier standing at attention in the San Diego heat who would pass out during this two-hour ceremony, or even to see several soldiers collapse. As if a protocol were in place for this, One of the strategically positioned officers would swiftly run to the fallen cadet and escort his or her floppy body off the premises. And the ceremony would continue, as if nothing had happened. Three Marines passed out that day that my brother graduated, and I couldn't help but wonder why. So that's what we'll be talking about today, when our program continues. Everybody who practices medicine has a basic understanding of syncope, right? That it describes a syndrome of numerous causes, and it's not a singular disease process. You probably know why it's important to distinguish lightheadedness or presyncope from entirely unrelated conditions like vertiginous dizziness and mechanical falls, so we're not going to talk about those conditions today. And it's important to determine the relationship between loss of consciousness and positioning, Someone who passes out while lying in bed, for instance, will have a very different mechanism of syncope from the patient who passes out within seconds of standing, and this patient will be different from the patient who passes out after minutes of walking. And not only the positioning of the body is important, where is the head or the neck? And by this I mean, does syncope occur with lateral neck rotation, or wearing tight-fitting collars that your patient bought from J.Crew, or does it occur with shaving? If those are the cases, then your patient may have an extremely sensitive carotid sinus. Or what were their arms doing? If your patient gets a little dizzy with arm movements or with arm elevation, that might clue you into a subclavian steel phenomenon. Or if your patient loses consciousness with urination or defecation, then that's also been pretty well described. And if you're listening to this show because you're involved in medicine, then you already know some of the basics of the workup for many patients with syncope. Getting an EKG labs, cardiac evaluation, sometimes a neurology consult, but we won't be covering much of this today. Instead, in this week's episode of Brainwaves, I've put together a quick review of the things you might not have known about syncope, at least some of the things that I didn't know, and some of the newer considerations, and some diagnoses you might have missed. As usual, remember that this podcast is for medical education purposes only, or if you happen to love hearing about this kind of stuff, then it's for your entertainment. It is not for routine clinical decision-making. The first thing I didn't know about syncope was that it's derived from the Greek word for cessation, 
as in cessation of consciousness. But it turns out that consciousness is not all that's turned off during syncopal episodes. When thinking back to those graduating Marines who lost consciousness that day in San Diego, I'm reminded of how spooky it can look, as if all life had drained from their bodies. The reason for this is that you actually do lose blood flow to the face when you're experiencing a neurally mediated syncope. As cerebral perfusion drops, the body tries to increase the perfusion to the brain by shunting blood from the less vital organs, organs like your intestines and the skin of your face. We'll talk more about how that happens in a minute. But clinically, this shunting of blood results in the characteristic symptoms of feeling of warmth or coldness, sometimes clammy skin or systemic weakness, and fecal urgency. Blurring or dimming of peripheral vision is also common, and it's thought to be a consequence of transient occipital or even retinal ischemia. Alright, so what does syncope actually look like? Yeah, your patient will collapse, no surprise there. But there are some other interesting patterns I didn't know about. First of all, it's not something that begins and ends over a matter of a second or two. The average duration of syncope is about 12 seconds. That's 12 seconds of unresponsiveness. And when you think about it pathophysiologically, if cerebral perfusion is not restored, then impaired consciousness can last even longer than that. Consider your patient who experiences syncope from a venipuncture, or a blood draw. If they pass out in their seat and they're still sitting upright, then their head is still way above their heart, and it's still starved from the gravitational flow of blood. Until the natural course of cerebral blood flow is restored, the patient may remain unconscious, which is bad. And you can imagine then, in severe cases, this patient may even experience watershed cerebral infarcts. Some patients also get headaches with their syncope, so that's not terribly unusual. More often, the headaches are in the suboccipital or posterior cervical areas, the so-called coat hanger headache, which is actually due to transient ischemia to these muscle groups. And when trying to conceptualize the etiologies of syncope, certainly headache syndromes like migraine can cause enough pain that actually produces loss of consciousness. Something that may be even more disturbing, if you've ever seen it, is when the patient's convulsing. Experts have reported that some degree of shaking can happen in almost 90% of patients with syncope. I mean, you can't not think that the patient's having a seizure when this happens. But syncope should be in your differential diagnosis for convulsions. And that leaves us with the next logical question. How can you distinguish convulsive syncope from seizure? Well, the types of movements can be helpful. For instance, if tonic-clonic movements or twitches begin in one extremity and then spread to the rest of the body, then that sounds a lot like seizure as it migrates across the cortex and over the corpus callosum. But if you see generalized myoclonic jerks or multifocal and irregular jerks, then that's good enough to be convulsive syncope or seizures. So why does syncope occur? At its core, syncope is really a neurologic process. It doesn't often originate in the brain, but it's caused by a problem in the brain, or to the brain. And often, as you know, syncope occurs in the setting of impaired cerebral blood flow. Specifically, the blood flow to the ascending reticular activating system of the brainstem, and some experts have argued to the bilateral cerebral hemispheres as well. The nervous system unconsciously modulates blood pressure and cerebral perfusion via the carotid sinus and aortic arch baroreceptors. 
which sense changes in the blood pressure and convey this information via the glossopharyngeal and vagus nerves to the nucleus of the solitary tract in the brainstem. But if you have trouble remembering these circuits, we copied Roy Freeman's graphic from his 2008 New England Journal article on our blog. And these parasympathetic signals are particularly disrupted in dysautonomias, like severe diabetic polyneuropathy, and rare conditions like acute pandysautonomia, which is one of the more unusual Guillain-Barre phenotypes. We'll get to that in a minute. Our next fun fact has to do with standing, as in the Marines who were standing at their ceremony, which, as you probably know, is a very common risk factor for syncope. Not many people come in saying, I passed out while I was laying on the couch. Usually that just indicates sleep. So it makes sense that as you stand up, blood is being pulled down into the legs. But did you know that standing up from a seated position is enough to draw out 500 cc's to a full liter of peripheral blood from your circulation? Gravity is a hell of a thing. So when you stand, this blood is pulled into the dependent capacitance beds, like the veins of the lower extremities and the abdomen. In some cases, it could be even more than half a liter that gets pulled into these capacitance beds, but intact sympathetic circuitry quickly prevents excess pooling by increasing the systemic vascular resistance. And then over the next minutes to hours, neurohumoral responses mediated by vasopressin and the renal angiotensin aldosterone system, they increase circulating plasma volume and cardiac output. Other responses include the sympathetically mediated increase in heart rate and contractility, which occurs over seconds to minutes, in order to increase the cardiac output and cerebral perfusion when the effective circulating volume is mildly reduced. And now that you've been reminded of all this basic physiology and you're evaluating your patient for syncope, what diagnoses are you considering? So this gets to kind of the more exciting part of the talk. By the time that the patient has reached your neurology clinic, they've probably been seen in the emergency room or by their primary care physician or maybe even a cardiologist. The patient's probably been ruled out for any new medications that could cause hypotension or autonomic impairment, and your patient's probably already gotten a decent cardiac and vascular workup. For the sake of our show, let's assume all this basic testing is negative. EKG, troponins, echocardiogram, an outpatient cardiac event monitor, brain imaging, brain vessel imaging, all these tests are normal. So now you might be thinking, maybe these syncopal spells are atonic seizures. So you might be getting a routine or an extended EEG. Migraines, as we mentioned earlier, have been associated with loss of consciousness. I've never seen it personally, and even more confusing here, actually treating the headache component of the migraine may not always guarantee you freedom from syncopal spells. Cataplexy is another unusual condition, often seen in narcoleptic patients. Usually, these events are triggered by emotions, laughter, or really intense excitement. So your patient may spontaneously and temporarily lose all muscle tone. But when you ask them after the fact, they will tell you that they've retained consciousness. So it's not exactly syncope, more like a mimic. But if the patient is syncopizing, you might think that they have autonomic dysfunction, which is why the patient is often referred to a neurologist. A tilt table test is a good starting point here if it hasn't been done already. And if you confirm that there's an impaired cardiac response to a quickly falling blood pressure, evaluating for the underlying cause would be indicated. An oral glucose tolerance test is recommended to evaluate for a diabetic autonomic neuropathy here, but an A1C is probably sufficient. A history of alcoholism or kidney failure and liver failure 
are some of the other common causes of autonomic and peripheral nerve dysfunction that you can rule out pretty quickly. The less common diagnoses to consider would be nutritional deficiencies, such as vitamin B12, and genetic conditions like hereditary amyloidosis, which you can confirm with genetic testing, usually due to a transthyretin gene mutation. The patient could also have a primary amyloidosis, which you can identify with a urine and serum protein electrophoresis. Sjogren's syndrome is something we always think about, and it's associated with a primary sensory neuronopathy, but it may have autonomic features as well. Another condition would be familial dysautonomia, which is a very rare autosomal recessive condition, and this presents with many more problems than just syncope, such as congenital insensitivity to pain, and then autonomic crises. But you can confirm this diagnosis with genetic testing for the I-kappa-B kinase-associated protein mutation. There's also acute pan-dysautonomia, which is caused by antibody formation to the ganglionic acetylcholine receptor, and it has a lot of the flavor of a Guillain-Barre type picture. All this being said, most patients will have negative testing for all of these things, especially as they get older. In those cases, we just call it an idiopathic neuropathy. This is super common. So, unless your patient is throwing up red flags, like early onset dysautonomia, a strong family history, or a rapid progression, Many neurologists will just start with checking a hemoglobin A1c, a B12 level, an SPEP or urine protein electrophoresis, and Sjogren's antibodies. If there are other interesting clinical findings, then you might proceed with an EMG and a nerve conduction study, or maybe even a skin biopsy to look for small fiber neuropathy. Now you may be asking yourself, what does any of this have to do with the military graduation, and how did those soldiers pass out? The thing about it is, the human body has not been upright for very long. Unless you're from Arkansas, then you know that our current physical form was meant to travel on all fours. And only for a very brief speck of time, we've decided that we'd rather use two legs instead of four. So how does this become problematic for us? Let's put all the pieces together. Standing, as we talked about earlier, can cause about three quarters of a liter of blood to pool in the veins of the lower extremities in the abdomen. You only have 5 liters of blood to start from, and only 20% of it ever reaches the brain, so a reduction of nearly 1 liter can be huge. Despite this relative reduction in available blood, there are also more lasting losses of available fluid in your circulation. What I mean by this is, after about 30 minutes, the pooling of blood in these gravity-dependent regions increase the pressure in the capillaries there, resulting in a leakage of about 10% of your available plasma. Both the pooling of blood in the lower extremities and the extravasation of plasma outside of these capillary beds can be overcome with leg muscle contraction, which increases venous return. But this doesn't happen when your legs are locked. So unless you're bending your knees and rocking on the balls of your feet, all of these processes will reduce the venous return to the heart, therefore reducing cardiac output, which the autonomic nervous system tries to compensate for. This redirects blood flow to the important organs, like the brain. And as I briefly mentioned before, there are also these neurohumoral effects mediated by vasopressin and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, and other signals, which change over time with protracted standing in order to increase cerebral perfusion. However, you can imagine that with this loss of available blood, not even the strongest hearts or hormones are going to save you from syncope. So, to avoid this, 
It's important to stay well hydrated and avoid locking your knees if you're going to be standing upright for a long period of time. Before we conclude, let's talk a bit about prognosis with syncope, which is also something that I wasn't very familiar with before preparing this talk. Again, a third of patients will syncopize at least one more time in the near future. And besides the obvious self-injury, what are some of the other worrisome consequences of syncope? Well, as a neurologist, I can say that there have been several interesting cohort studies that have identified a risk of dementia in patients with orthostatic hypotension. Now, you might be thinking, well, Jim, autonomic dysfunction is not uncommon in the elderly to begin with, and it's more common as you get older. And we also see it commonly in several other syndromes associated with dementia, particularly Parkinson disease and several of the Parkinson plus synucleinopathies, like dementia with Lewy bodies and MSA. Or you might argue that orthostatic hypotension may increase your risk of impaired brain perfusion, causing the slow accumulation of microinfarcts and a vascular dementia. But what's interesting is that orthostasis increases your risk of Alzheimer's disease, and so does hypotension, both kind of independently of each other. The thought here is that insufficient perfusion will increase the buildup of beta amyloid plaques for really unclear reasons, and these result in Alzheimer's disease. This obviously doesn't account for all Alzheimer's disease, so don't start taking salt tabs or anything like that. And obviously we worry about the converse. With uncontrolled hypertension, you're at a greater risk of a vascular dementia. So you've got to find that happy medium to keep the happy brain. That sums up most of the things about syncope you should probably know. We didn't cover everything today, especially not the psychogenic causes of syncope or POTS, aka postural tachycardia syndrome, because I don't think we know enough about those conditions and they're a little bit more controversial. For more information on what we did cover, however, and links to some great articles, check out our post this week on brainwaves.me. This episode today was produced by me, Jim Siegler, with Erica Mejia, Music was courtesy of Jason Shaw, Andy Cohen, Kai Engel, and Josh Woodward. I'm Jim Siegler for Brainwaves. Thanks for listening.